We're your hosts. I'm Faith. And I'm Dom. And this is Red Flags, a podcast where we discuss different red flags or warnings and how they relate to us both culturally, socially, and personally. Today's topic is true crime. Um, today we have a special guest, don't we, Dom? Oh, we have a very special guest. Please, introduce. My name is Megan Gross. I'm a professor of communication and media studies at Washington College. Hi, Dr. Gross. Hi. Totally not our advisor. Not no. At all. <laughs> no. Um, our, so our next guest in our very overflowing our queue. Our exclusive list. Yeah, our overflowing <laughs> queue of exclusive guest stars. You have nabbed the entire communication and media studies department for right. your massive show. department. Yeah. <laughs> Yo. It's a get. Truly. Um, We're going to have to start like putting out like contracts or something. <laughs> yeah. NDAs. Yeah. You can only appear on our podcast. Gosh. Oh, I was like, NDAs? What are we going to talk about? Hey, you can't spoil the next episode. Exactly. Okay. We oh, got, I see. We got to have the listeners coming back. I gotcha. Because if Dr. Gross puts like a little leak out, you're like, oh, we talked about this and that on the podcast today. And, you know, Dom's conduct is questionable. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about red flags in the true crime community and like the ethics of it. Mm-hmm. Dom, do you watch a lot of true crime? I can safely say I do not. Dr. Gross, do you? I do. <laughs> uh, we can talk about my criteria for what I watch. You don't watch any true crime. No true crime podcasts. No Dateline episodes. No. What about you? I, of course, do. Tell me your your favorites. I like A lot of the ones I watch on you, like are on YouTube, and they're just kind of ones oh. that like came up in my recommended. YouTube is... Um, I think I feel, I don't know. I think I'm too old to watch original content on YouTube. I think that's what um, my generational gap is. But, you know, obviously there's like a bunch of podcasts. uh, Podcasters love true crime. So this might be your avenue um, into that whole group. Um, But there's TV series, uh, you know, a lot of written texts, obviously. But it's a super old format, right? Mm -hmm. Like we're talking about, you know. Some people trace it back very far, but even if we're thinking about like news articles in the 1800s about Jack the Ripper or something like that, right? Like people oh, have I've read long... all of those. Yeah. Like the original ones? Yeah, I like I look them up. I I was fascinated with Jack the Ripper when I was in middle school because one of like the mangas I read uh-huh. involved him, so oh. I like looked up everything I could. That's amazing. What did you learn? Like, I just learned kind of like his method of doing things and who the potential suspects were, but nobody was ever caught. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, the methods, that's like one of the kind of frameworks for true crime, right? Like mm-hmm. there's a lot of different versions. So yeah, like I mentioned, there's like the dateline version and then there's like the more um, prestige kind of versions of true crime, right? Like, uh, oh, what is the Netflix show with the Wisconsin accents? Dumb. Uh, Making a Murderer. Oh, right, right. You should watch that one just for the accents. They're beautiful. I will, I will. Um. <laughs> Or like The Keepers, uh, if you watch that. Um, Very kind of prestige level uh, kind of true crime drama. But Netflix has also had those um, satirical versions. Help me with the name of the one that's like the satirical true crime show. American Vandal. Oh, yeah. Where they have the the poop scandal. Yeah. And like, yeah. Yeah. One of the seasons went over like a a bathroom scandal. Like the one in gold. I was about to say, it's really relevant to us here. But we, we won't go into details for our non-Washington College listeners. Everyone who's on campus will know yeah. exactly what you mean. 
Um, yeah, American Vandal, right? Like there's there's such a known format for it that we're at the point where it's satire, right? Yeah, I think most of the stuff I watch is like do- almost documentary like. Mm-hmm. Um, although I don't like to watch Dateline specifically, while I love like I can't remember his name, but the main guy on there with the white hair. You know who I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. I love him, and something about his voice is amazing, yeah. but I hate how they're always like, oh, coming up next, and it takes the whole episode to get there. They're purposely stretching they're it out. really drawing it out. It's just, true. I can't. Yeah. Um, what do you think are like the, the best ones that you watch or listen to? Are there any non-YouTube ones you watch, I guess? I watched a few on Netflix. There was one... Oh, um, one on Netflix that I watched is was called um, I Just Killed My Dad, and it was like a three-parter, um, and it kind of went over um, the murder of this man by his son and, like, whether or not he could be deemed um, guilty of murder because he was abused by his father. Mm. So I like the idea of it bringing in, like, like, how ethical everything was and if there are situations in which... Not necessarily murder, but fighting back is okay. Yeah, right. Because um, there there are a lot of different frameworks you can look at, both in thinking about like the who you're focusing on in the crime, the kinds of crime you're focusing on, um, but also the motivations for it, right? And we see something quite different. I have not seen that, but with that story. Um, but there was also like any number of kind of like both fictionalized and documentaries about the uh, daughter who killed her mother with um, when she had Munchhausen's Munch by proxy. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, uh, the um, Gypsy Rose. Yeah. yeah. Like, uh, Mommy Dead and Dearest and stuff like mm-hmm. that, too. And that raises some similar questions about, like, the nature of abuse and, like, what is a rational response to that? Or if it's not rational, like, is it a break that's makes them criminally liable or not. Um, those are much messier than, I don't know, like the straight serial killer ones. Yeah. Right? But to start off, I found some sources talking about kind of like the red flags of the true crime content itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so Meat Man Media on YouTube. Meat Man Media. I know. What but he made a fantastic video called True Crime is Often Disappointing on YouTube. Huh. Um, and he made, like, a list of things that he does not like about crew crime. True. Um, I had the, the list of the things he didn't like on my phone, and it, it's, it's... So uh, these are things he didn't like about the actual, like, that was happening in the crimes or in the narrative In the content. Of yeah. the crimes. Okay, cool. So the way that the content is, like, out there, especially on YouTube. I know yeah. you don't watch it on YouTube, but... Well, you're going to have to share some recommendations this can, in your um, show notes. <laughs> this can most certainly go for any type of true crime. Mm-hmm. Um, so he said, I don't like true crime when it's filled with jokes and unnecessary comments, um, when jokes are made at the victim's expense, wow. and when the presenter is trying too hard uh, to be unique at the cost of being clear. Oh, interesting. I want examples now of this particular thing. Have you got some? Yes. Oh, so yes. Oh. he specifically said he doesn't like when creators get really creative with uh-huh. how they're trying to put out their true crime. Um, and examples he has is like when there's a joke like when he killed her he gouged her eyes out I bet she didn't see that coming Ooh, yeah. I'm with him yeah. or he found a video like this one was an actual video of this guy saying um, this story takes us to the exotic locale of Pleasant Town, California naming it like that it's like they wanted something bad to happen and it did 
Yeah, I don't like it either. I'm with Meat Man yeah. Media. Because he's Meat saying... Meat Man. Um, <laughs> Man Media, yeah. He's saying, is creativity necessary in true crime retellings? Yeah. Because it's often just used as a way to entertain the audience. But can you manage to entertain the audience with just the story? Like, it's, it's yeah. just... A lot of these people being creative is their way of trying to keep an audience and entertain that audience. Mm-hmm. So... Like, is it necessary and is it ethical? Yeah, right. Because I get why people would want to distinguish their content. That's like a super normal thing that media creators want to do. But this is a dicey area. And even when it's done well, the ethics of true crime is a complicated thing. Are the people who are making the YouTube videos just like everyday people who are doing like internet sleuthing kind of stuff? Some of them, yeah. Okay. Because even I would say for some of the the like podcast examples, um, one of the first big uh, podcasts in the wave of, of true crime podcast was Serial. Um, did either of you listen to, mm-hmm. to that? Yeah, and so we have a journalist who's tackling that, someone who has experience doing investigative work, but who is not a criminal investigator. And even that's like our journalist's position to do you know, criminal investigations. Like, maybe, sometimes, but particularly for people who don't have that experience at all, I could see them leaning on these other things with that being a problem. Mm -hmm. But they don't have those skills of, like, navigating, you know, thinking about people's personal identities and their privacy and, like, the kind of harm that could come from telling people's stories. Um, And so, yeah, making a joke of it is really, woof. Uh, That seems... Like a bad idea. Yeah, you like a red flag, right? Like, oh, like a red flag. Big one. Um, so he also says how people try to make their true crime um, content more palatable mm. um, by offsetting tension with humor, making the gruesome accessible, and risk, and in doing so, they risk trivializing events and consequences. Yeah. And they do this so that their audience is either more comfortable listening mm. to it mm-hmm. um, because... They either don't want their audience to be, like, too upset, hmm. which is odd considering it's a tragedy, um, or they want their audience to feel safe in a manner. It's interesting, like, the idea of the audience feeling safe because it would seem like part of the appeal, and so this is, like, weirdly different than part of me is, like, a, a, maybe, a, like, a red flag for me is people who are, like, too into the very, like, salacious kind of true crime that's very focused on, like, the grisliness of it in some mm-hmm. ways. Um, but that's the exact opposite. Like people aren't there to feel comfortable, right? Like part of what people are exploring is like the darkness of humanity. Um, but then there's also other ideas about how audiences use true crime as a space for like, I don't know, catharsis. If you've been like a victim of crime or a survivor of crime, um, using it for, uh, like community building, um, and this idea of kind of connection to other people who have been in similar situations, uh, and for some people, there's this idea that it's this kind of like educational thing where uh, people are figuring out like how to navigate these situations. And so, yeah, I guess I've never heard people say like, I want my true crime to be like warm and fuzzy or like, that's not quite what they're saying, but yeah. like, a, a, like palatable. Mm-hmm. That's Dude, a word I, that's like thrown around a lot, palatable. Yeah. I feel like I'd be there for the thrill. Like, like I don't know. I wouldn't want it to be comfy either. If I want to listen to a true crime podcast, I almost want it to kind of like shake me up a little bit in some way. An example of that is like 
to make it more palatable, some people, as they're telling the story, like, do their makeup and tell it. And people are questioning the ethics of that. Like, you're talking about real people's lives and you're doing makeup. Yeah. Um, And I can see both sides of it. Like, at, at one point you have to be very careful with what you say and do because this can affect real people. Yeah. Um, And these are real events that happen. But on the other hand, I understand wanting to make your audience feel more comfortable depending on, like, why they're coming there for it. Perhaps they're just trying to kind of learn about what happened and keep Mm -hmm. themselves safe and they don't want all the, like, the gruesome details and they want to feel safe coming into the video. In that case, I totally understand. But once again, it's, it's, like, it's towing the line. If I may play a small bit of devil's advocate, do you think they're doing it just to get bigger audiences? Some people for sure. I want it to be more comfortable. That way more people are going to watch my video and listen to me talk. Some people for sure. But I I don't feel comfortable like generalizing everyone does that. I'm sure some people do. Some people do a lot of things to get an audience. But Mm -hmm. I think some people genuinely might want to make this kind of content and make it accessible for certain people. Mm. Yeah, I guess I've seen other examples of that too, where you'll see like similarly people like making food while having some background like on TikTok, right? Like having some background audio that has nothing to do with it. But the question of like, why are audiences coming to this? Like, I don't think people ask themselves that a lot. Um, I sometimes don't ask myself that when I'm watching it, but I guess you, you don't, you don't go to this content very often, but you had an idea that like there might be something that you'd want to explore there about this kind of darker side of humanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Faith, what do you think? Why do you watch it or listen to it? I'm not sure. Yeah. Like it just, I don't know, maybe it fascinates me in like a scary way, like knowing what the world's actually like. Cause I've never like, obviously I've never experienced anything like that. Yeah. So yeah, I, th- I think that's why I listen to it. Mostly just kind of to learn more about what's going on out there and what could happen and just to keep myself safe. Yeah, and part of what I was wondering as I was thinking about true crime, given the kind of ethical dilemmas of it, is like, well, what do we what do we get from true crime that we can't get from scripted stuff? Um, do you feel differently like engaging with something you know to be true versus something that you think of as being scripted? Do you think it matters? I think for sure, yeah. I think like... When it's scripted, no part of me feels uncomfortable because I'm like, oh, this is fake. This didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's fake. Like, yeah. But when I learn that it's real, like, when you watch some type of true crime, I feel like there's always, like, a tiny, at least a tiny part of you that feels uncomfortable and you mm. want to because you want to know about these bad things that are happening. Yeah. So I feel like they, they affect, well, I'll watch both. I feel like one affects me in a different way than the other. Yeah, because with true crime, sometimes you do frequently, you know, the outcome of it. So it's not like the suspense of a narrative. There's something else going on there. Um, like one of the kind of early written examples people will talk about is in Cold Blood, the Truman Capote book. Like we know exactly what happens in that situation. And yet the suspense is kind of built through those kind of gory details. And we know the heinousness of that crime. So like, what do we get from from those details? Um, and I think that, again, is a very complicated thing depending on what kind of content you're actually looking at. And so I think increasingly some of the kind of content that um, people are looking at that you do see, I think we can make an argument for kind of ethical consumption of, shifts the focus away from that goriness and away from a fascination with the perpetrator of those crimes Mm -hmm. towards the impact on 
victims and survivors. And so I think that's also like, those are really fundamentally different things. I think also in fiction, not only do you know it's fake, but there's always like a reason why the killer is doing it. In real life, you don't always know why it happened. Yeah. I think that's also like the difference there. Like you sometimes watch real true crime trying to figure out why this happened in the first mm-hmm. place. Like what can make a person snap like that? Yeah. And again, like the story you're saying with the um, the father and son, that's like so different than... Um, I usually don't judge people's media consumption just like as like professionally I try to avoid doing that so that you know folks don't feel like they can't tell me these things or share these things and have us think about them critically but um I'm gonna throw a red flag out there which is like people who are obsessed with like Jeffrey Dahmer or um Ted Bundy like to me a fascination with why those people did what they did feels very different Mm -hmm. than the example of the father and son thing is there almost like a nicheness about it like if Dahmer and Bundy like they're so mainstream like everyone knows about them there could be I mean I think there is something about like the repetitiveness that's almost like this is not a good word for talking about something as grisly as this but it's almost like annoying how much people want to keep telling that same story over and over and over again but I think particularly with someone like when people talk about Ted Bundy there's this repeated idea where people talk about like how handsome he was and that's like the ickiest ickiest thing for me like that just like really puts me off um when people talk about that uh and i will say that also doesn't like the idea that he was just like this super charming dude doesn't seem supported by like stories from his relatives or anything like that and so like what is it that we're trying to do by making him seem more appealing like what is as audiences what are we doing what are we like what are we saying about the nature of this person that instead of focusing on like deep very blatant misogyny which is why he was going around and murdering women Mm -hmm. um in huge numbers like we're focused on his appeal as a as a like physical appeal or or kind of his the appeal of his character i understand it's one thing if like somebody's looking at uh like these quote-unquote famous serial killers to understand like the psychological to understand like the psychological side of it that's one thing but when you're just fascinated with them as people that's weird it's so weird um yeah it's a red flag i was about to say are you gonna call it yeah huge 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 red flag but so, like, I think there's this thing, um, I have not watched it yet, but there was some, like, the, the last Ted Bundy thing is where they started to turn and where I saw his family members being like, no, he was a terrible person and, like, like awful, like, terrible to be around, like, not charming, not any of these things. I don't know why people are saying that. Um, Somebody, like, I, I saw an article, um, it's from thevalleystarnews.com, mm-hmm. and they were talking about how, like, um, with the the film that Zac Efron was in yeah. about Ted Bundy, yeah. um, they said that telling the story from the point of view of a woman who is blindly in love with Bundy is questionable. Because if you do watch the movie, it is in the uh, point of view of his girl- girlfriend, I think. Mm. And that once again, that's a weird way to approach true crime. Why not approach it from a different... Like, why the point of view of someone who thought he was this charming way? Yeah. That makes the whole movie kind of portray him that way and it's kind of gross it is um and i think it might have been around that was that a netflix movie they had to post like 
stop talking about this. Like, this is a horrible thing that we're looking at. And then they turn around and they release the Dahmer show um, and sort of like soft peddled it or seemed to kind of backpedal a little bit while putting huge stars in it, right? It's a Ryan mm-hmm. Murphy show. Um, but I have not watched it because all I've read about it is just how deeply unethical it is, how um, it's essentially, you know, it's been described as like torture porn, right? Like this just like fascination with um, just the the worst elements of human beings. Um, I don't know why we need to keep doing that. And, you know, yeah. streaming companies are obviously like they want they want views, too, just like these YouTube folks want views. I would say people watched it. A lot. It was, people it was are like still watching immediately it. the top yeah. thing. And like that true crime, they do as well. They do as well with that content as anyone probably ever has in making TV, right? Um, like I haven't yeah. watched it, but I know Netflix pumps out documentaries like that, and documentaries in general. Netflix. Well, it wasn't a documentary. documentary. It was like or the like, acted out. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah. I don't know what the word for that is, but yeah, it's like the fictionalized. Yeah. Kind yeah, of. Like it's a, not though. There's. I mean, I forget it's, what it's, it's like, called, but yeah, it's something like that. Since 1993 yeah. alone, there have been six films made on just Jeffrey Dahmer, yeah. and that's not like documentaries or anything. There's so many of those. This is like. Uh, like Hollywood films made about him. Mm-hmm. There does not need to be six no. in the past like 20, 30 years. Like yeah. that's too much. You're kicking the dead horse. Yeah, it's... You're making these people like relive it over and over again, especially like the victims' families. Yeah, and that's what they. That's what a bunch of the victims' families came out and said about the, the last Netflix series. They're like, think about my family member who's gone through this. Um, and there's also this like this issue with there's a lot of crime, right? We're talking a lot about like a particular kind of crime, murders and serial murders and sexual assault and sexual violence tend to loom pretty large in true crime. Um, But there's like a lot of these kinds of uh, issues of violence that are circulating. And yet we focus on, you know, this half dozen set of serial killers who are, you know, long gone for the most part. Um, And we know their stories, we know what's been said about them already. And what we, in focusing on that, when there's so many other kind of crime issues that we could focus on, we're really missing so much of the kind of like structural um, or systematic, I guess I should say, uh, ways in which we see violence perpetrated. And so like a lot of this focus on serial killers and even their victims is about um, white men killing white women. Um, we don't see a lot talking about um, certainly uh, victims who are trans or non-binary, victims of color. And so what that tells us is those are the narratives that matter. Those are the people whose death matter. And they do matter. Those people matter a lot. Um, But what we say about all these other groups who are, again, victims of violence at at an extremely high rate, um, they don't matter so much. We don't actually need to see their stories in the same way. And I think I think it was, even in, in the people we do talk about, it was Dahmer. Yeah, right. So Jeffrey Dahmer was specifically targeting queer people of color. Mm-hmm. And like, that's not usually what we're talking about, or at least that kind of like way in which he was able to target those victims because they were systematically treated as not important humans. Like, we don't talk about that. Like, that might be an interesting way to revisit that story and think about the ways we have done 
as a society done wrong by those communities. We have kind of left them without these avenues for justice. We don't talk about that. And in doing that, like you put a certain group also as kind of the dangerous ones and everybody else is like the victims. And yeah. like, like a lot of true crime goes over like Dahmer and, and Bundy and like, as you said, other white men. Yeah. yeah. And like, it doesn't talk about any other kinds of serial killers. Like there's women serial killers. Mm-hmm. There's serial killers who are people of color. Mm-hmm. And like, it's just, it's weird that they don't focus on other types, you know? Like if, yeah. Dom, if I asked you right now, I'm sure you could name several like white male serial killers, right? Yeah. Name a, a, a female serial killer. Unless you're gonna say Typhoid Mary, uh, no one. Yeah. I can think of one who I can only think of her first name right now. Eileen Warnos. Yep. yep. I was like, Eileen. Eileen is the only one I can think of. I mean, but there's been there's been a ton. Like, unfortunately, there's been. But yeah. they don't, I don't know why. They just focus on this one group and kind of, yeah. I think it's important to, if you're so into true crime and documenting it, it's important to not just pull from a specific group. Mm-hmm. Like, you should be kind of talking about true crime in general or larger cases, smaller cases, but like not just from this one group. Yeah. I I will also pull out and see, I'm curious about what your reactions were to this. And again, we'll try to make it to not judge. Um, but you know, like I also think we just like, because it's so often treated as this kind of like guilty pleasure as audiences, we're also not like asking ourselves to check our reactions to things and to check the way that they're kind of informed by maybe like internalized misogyny or, or like these kind of racist structures or anything like that. And so now I'm going to ask you, did you watch Tiger King and what did you think of it? When it came out, I did watch the first season. Yeah. Um, Wait, there's a second season? There was. I think so. Right? I think so. I haven't watched it. so I, I would... didn't even know about this. Um... I watched the first season when it came out because, like, my sister was really into it and she wanted us to watch it as a family. It was March 2020. Seriously, no judgments on what people were binge watching. We were all coping. But I was particularly, like, as all this stuff was going on, like, that was a recent example of a true crime thing, a phenomenon, right? Like, and I'm curious what people found appealing about it or, like, if you were to kind of critically reflect on it more, if there's things you notice that you didn't notice when you were just, like, trying to get through whatever the heck March 2020 was. This is the one I've seen. This is the one thing you brought I did up. Wonder, I have yeah. seen that. I think I mostly just thought like, wow, this guy's crazy. Like yeah. this guy is absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, and not even the guy. I thought, all right, Carol killed her husband. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, this is exactly the response I thought I might get. Yeah. I'll, I'll take this day. First of all, I will admit, Joe Exo- when I'm watching Joe Exotic, <laughs> it literally was, how batshit crazy everybody was crazy is this in that show. It, but joe exotic crazy. specifically he had like i think it was two or three male lovers one divorced him one killed himself yeah and and it was like and it just and stuff just kept going on with this guy yeah and he was like how far into left field are we gonna follow this man and then simultaneously you have the other one who, for some whatever reason, is this wild ass boy's rival, <laughs> and she's out here killing her husband, feeding him the tigers. What do you remember about? So I've not watched Tiger King since I think April twenty twenty when I was like, ugh, I guess I should see what everyone's talking about. 
Do you remember what the story was about, like how her and her husband met and like what their relationship was? I, Wasn't it really weird? Like he was older than her. And yeah. He was like, I, I, I should just look it up. He was significantly older than her. She was mm-hmm. like 17 when they yeah. got married. Yeah. And he like, my memory is she was like biking on the side of the road and he just like picked her up and then they got married. He was extremely abusive. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know if she killed her husband, but like that part of the story, which is like a pretty common example, you know, thinking about again how why audiences are using this for women, it is often this idea of like arming themselves against mistreatment or against violence, um, or kind of seeing some sort of representation of their own experience there, like that manipulation is a common one and that was like very underplayed it was glossed yeah. i think they they spent through that in maybe one episode meanwhile you spent predominantly more time with with joe exotic who is committing crimes right and literal like, crimes yeah. and of the the issue of like his i forget if he married them husbands partners whatever I, again this is my memory i didn't i couldn't sit through all of tiger king a second time but my memory is like these are young men mm-hmm. who are have identified themselves as being straight and who he plies with drugs and the promise of more and more illegal drugs. Like, that's, like, a manipulation and abuse that, like, got kind of laughed off. Even yeah. as we see the extreme reactions, right? Someone died by suicide as a result. Like, they this. showed the video. Yeah. On, on the program mm-hmm. of the guy shooting himself. And I was like, holy, this is yeah. like a legitimate thing. Yeah. And so it's like there's so much in thinking about like why we turn, like how we turn this into entertainment or how we make it more palatable. There, Like I think Tiger King is just that weird example of like he is so kooky that our brains turn off to like all the crazy stuff that they're mm-hmm. saying and the misogyny about people hating carol baskin because she's like some kind of way like she is also kooky but the disdain i remember hearing from people for carol baskin at that time was like what world am i living like yeah. are we watching the same thing and that was just like a, an extremely strange like media phenomenon and like the whole thing was like how weird are these people going yeah. to be yeah so like yeah you kind of turned a blind eye and to the whole point of the show both of them were like severely mistreating these animals in captivity him his was like an entertainment park and hers was a rescue is that correct yeah yeah that's different right like those yeah. are different things but yeah it was because they were so weird yeah. collectively and yeah. not even joe and carol baskin like yeah. everyone around them was weird like, I don't want to say weird, but, like, there was some... The web kind of went outward. Yeah. Like, if you look at the people that worked at the, the Joe Exotic thing, like, Joe Exotic... He attracted, like, it's, people. It's, yeah, yeah. It's weirdness seeped outward. It really... And and it took you away from the fact that, like, this is a legitimate crime story. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, exotic animal ownership. What are the acceptable animals that people exotic animals people can own like what would you say is like big red flags on that like they i think cover all of them right like anyone owning that like level of exotic animal i don't think they can be right mm-hmm. i just say I, I, on a little bit my brother owns a lot of exotic animals tell me what kind like turtles <laughs> uh bugs insects scorpions okay 
snakes. I see. I layer that. I put that much lower. Yeah. Than like tigers. Yeah. Tigers like, are a lot different. Yeah. Reptiles and bugs. Yeah. I'm going to say that's that's quite different. But like the scale of that, like people wind up scaling up pretty fast. So just like checking on your brother that he doesn't, you know, nudge into the wrong side of this. No. Make sure your brother isn't Jeremy Exotic. Jeremy. I call, okay, you don't understand the fact that- Is he going to listen to this? Uh, hopefully. Uh, Dom's brother, stop it, reptiles and bugs. <laughs> I know he has the, the world's most venomous scorpion. Oh. Yeah, Why? Because he can. Because he can! Literally. But, but what do you call it? We used to call him Jeremy Exotic because he also works for Terminex. I, so he deals with bugs and stuff all the time. amazing. I think this has turned from a true crime red flag like episode to we should probably check with your brother to make sure he is okay. You know, there's like plenty of red flags on the animal front. Certainly like what animals you collect, what you do to animals is a real serial killer tie-in. Yeah. Like that's a really common thing that we... Were they like... No. They often, like they say a sign is that you kill animals. Yeah. As a child. Yeah, that you're, or like hurt them, right? Yeah. He doesn't hurt them, he collects them. Alive, yeah. And well, uh, yeah, and tends he li- to them. Yeah, I would say okay. his big thing is he likes to take care of them. So he's not going to become a serial killer. No, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, going off of like the Joe Exotic thing. Yes. Um. Often, uh, serial killers have like an image or a mm. persona created for them, um, which kind of almost glorifies everything yeah. that they did instead of like. Saying like, hey, that was a that was a really, really terrible thing they did. Yeah. And like what could we maybe learn about how to prevent these things? Or what can we learn about, you know, taking care of people who have severe mental illness or like whatever it is. Like none of that obviously justifies any of this, but we're not asking those bigger kind of systematic questions out of it. And I think when we're drawing the line between like true crime that that is working ethically and not like thinking about what are we doing with the information we're learning from it is an important thing it is totally possible to be entertained by media texts and like that be their purpose but i think when we're dabbling into people's lives and stories where people's lives are like ripped apart and families are torn apart we owe it to each other to kind of ask ask a bit more um, but like in terms of like good things that true crime podcasts do, um, again, uh, it's, it is women audiences are feeling kind of armed with a certain set of knowledge here frequently. Um, that's, that's kind of what has been attributed. The, the, the true crime fandom amongst women audiences, um, is often attributed to that. But, you know, we see an, any number of examples where cases that were, that had been lost um, kind of were either not paid that much attention to or were kind of lost in other narratives wind up getting pulled forward and where we see these kind of like bigger questions of justice which are embedded in all our true crime narratives um, whether ex- you know explicitly or implicitly we see instances where there are wrongs that have been like not not righted but maybe like uh we spend time with those things, right? And so one of the examples, I maybe mentioned this at the beginning, but The Keepers, um, have you watched this one? It's the no. Nun. It's a Netflix, it's a Netflix docu-series. And uh, it was these two, I think it was two older women who were investigating what they thought, what they 
kind of felt to be the murder of this teacher of theirs in Catholic school who's this nun who would like no one paid any attention to and they like you know pounded the pavement and did all this work and they brought light to this person who like meant a lot to them and whose disappearance had been kind of swept under the rug um and to talk about serial again you know very recently we had the um chart and now I'm, I'm forgetting the kind of legal I think I have it up here the actual legal construction of what was happened. Uh, we had the conviction of Adnan Syed overturned in large part because of the work that that podcast did and the investigative work of that podcast did to uncover a real miscarriage of justice, right? Like pretty extreme. Um, we had a problem with his representation, with evidence not being properly either managed or um, kind of analyzed in some way. Um, and certainly that kind of revisiting of that crime was really hard on, on the victim's family, on Heyman Lee's family. But it's also like the wrong, like it seems the wrong person has been in prison for that. And so we get these opportunities when we focus again on these bigger kind of systematic questions of of the miscarriage of justice in most of these cases, we get a chance to really address those and to think about what we can do better and how we can serve people better. Um, and in that case, again, we see uh, pres you know, pretty clear discrimination based on um, the fact that he's Muslim. Like we need, to, we need to answer for that. Like if we're thinking about what our justice system does, we need to consider um, these sorts of uh, extreme examples where people people's lives are um, really ruined by a lack of care like with what you were talking about about the uh, the nun story yeah um, that I'm shows how like specifically in true crime content it shows how the point of view of the narrative is important yeah like um, the difference between uh, following the victims lives mm -hmm. or yeah following the victims live Wait, following the victim's life or lives, whoever mm -hmm. it is, um, or following the killer's life. Yeah, following the killer's life just kind of glorifies them once again even more. Yeah, like it's one thing if you're trying to look at the psychology behind them, but just focusing on their life and not the victims at all, kind of makes it seem as though the victims aren't important. But they need to they need to be remembered for what happened to them and that. Yeah they were they were just victims in all of this like at the end of the day and they didn't ask for this to happen or to be yeah. talked about but yeah and i think you know there's other kind of like ways in which you can think about the kind of media coverage of crime and the way that people are dealing with that i there's some tv show i'm forgetting where they just never mentioned it was i think it was a serial killer never mentioned the name of the person never showed them and it was like the first time that that had happened it was just purely a story of victims but if we're thinking about the potential for um, not just copycats, but people who see the kind of fascination with serial killers or with murder as, I don't know, that being glorified, that's a problem when we're thinking about people. But if we're kind of over glorifying serial killers, there's this potential for people to see that and see that as being some sort of value mm -hmm. um and that value could just be attention but attention as we know as we see um in youtube views and any number of other things is a really valuable resource 
And so we see that when we're talking about the coverage of other sorts of crime in media as well in a discussion about like, how do we ethically navigate sharing this information? And so when we're looking at things like mass shooting events, there's been a similar turn even in the last few years to say like, let's not talk about the person who killed all these people. Let's talk about the lives of the people we've lost and really honor those and put those forward. And so I think we're seeing that increasingly in true crime, but I think we're seeing it maybe in some other kind of media spaces as well. But yeah, there have been some really good examples um, where we see this turn to focus on victim uh, or survivor, you know, like the language of that is one I know people feel kind of, some people feel differently about. Um, but if we're talking about like whose voice matters, probably the, the people who are either surviving this or who are victims of this, like those are the mm-hmm. people who we need to focus on. Um, there was a, a, so I said the keeper did a pretty good job at that, but if you watch Surviving R. Kelly, that was an example where there were some really powerful sort of like survivor narratives. Um, and then the show Unbelievable on Netflix also did a really good job at this and in having viewers think about why is it that we mistrust the stories of women as they're saying they've been, in this case, sexually assaulted. Um, like, why are we not believing this person? Like, what is it that we're looking for? Um, basically, like, why are we not following through on this case? Uh, and I think, you know, we look at the the kind of broader questions about the trust we have in women um, as being pretty central in all of those cases. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's definitely ways to go about, like, talking about true crime that I'd, I'd like to say, like, are ethical. Like, it, yeah. as long as you're not you know, glorifying killers and kind of doing things in a disrespectful way. Like, yeah. it's, it's always important to respect both the victims and their families. Yeah. Um, which, have you ever heard of the term um, murderbilia? No. Okay. So I watched this YouTube video by Kidology, um, and she made a video called uh, The Darker Side of the True Crime Community mm-hmm. and mentioned this thing called murderbilia. So it's like... Uh, collecting uh, things that either belong to serial killers or uh, somehow related to them, etc. Um, and then they like post videos of them, like getting it for views. Gross. That's L- where that's where I thought you were gonna go with that. I was like, if this is not a portmanteau that I'm thinking it is, I will yeah. be very yeah. Like that's wild. Um, yeah, there was one website called Cult Collectible where they'd sell like cur- serial killer related stuff. And as if that wasn't bad enough, they have sales for murderers' birthdays. Like on Jeffrey Dahmer's birthday, they had a sale. That's which my is disgusting. God. There was one channel on YouTube where this guy bought uh, Jeffrey Dahmer's like reading glasses and he tried them on for views. Sure. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I can't say that surprises me in the sense that like. It's people trying to make a profit off of yeah. serial killers. And like Like that's the low like I'm not surprised since it's like that is a pretty low bar move. And like to some to imagine someone doing that, I'm like, yeah, I could see someone doing that. That's horrible. What do we think these people are getting out of it yeah. besides views? Like why do we think Some people are getting money. Okay. Like, um, there's this one guy, Eric Collar, he would reach out to serial killers like um Richard Ramirez, mm-hmm. yes. Um, so Richard Ramirez, um, he reached out to him mm-hmm. and was like, hey, can I sell some of your art? And basically he did, and he got a profit for it. 
like he is used to collecting serial killers things and then selling them yeah you know it's okay if you don't know this and haven't searched is this happening on like the is this happening on the dark web like where is this I don't think it's happening, no, not on the dark web, but it's not happening, like, on eBay, because eBay has a specific, like, ban yeah. for murderabilia, but I don't think it's, like, the dark web. I think it's very easy to find this Ugh. kind of stuff. Because, you know, like, as you were saying that, I was like, there are, I think it's France, right? It's, like, illegal to sell Nazi memorabilia mm-hmm. in France. Like, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's France. Like, I don't know why this would be legal. Um, well, it's, like, in the video... Um, the girl who made the video talked about how it's different if you're collecting these things. Yeah. Like, let's say for historical purposes, maybe it's like some kind of museum or otherwise. Um, yeah. And that museum might also be like, I don't know, talking about victim stories. Like, yeah, if they are collecting for a reason not relating to profit, mm-hmm. that that's I mean, that's more understandable. But murderbilia specifically is for some kind of profit, whether that's views or yeah. money or attention. And they just end up glorifying these these murderers and these perpetrators yeah i don't see i mean i don't see how it's any for people buying it for themselves if it's not for some sort of like institutional purpose i don't see how that could be anything but just like weird a deeply unethical should be illegal um like the biggest red flag that exists like yeah it'd be one thing if they were like i don't know they had something of a killer's and they were like selling it but all the money went to like some type of donation for victims that's one thing but if you're just collecting this stuff that's a little odd but at least i mean this sounds like a low bar but at least you're not using it for profit yeah yeah that's like yeah and even if a massive red flag i mean you know i'm i'm as big a fan of capitalism as as there is but that's that's a low yeah that's a low move yeah um, I don't know why I'm surprised. Like nothing should, yeah, that's should what be saying. surprising, but like it's. But speaking of things that should should be surprising, but are not, there was like, I've never used Tumblr, but there have been like Tumblr communities filled with girls who are like, oh, this serial killer's hot, this school shooter's hot, and it's just yes. like what? hot. The first thing I think of is that they must be horrible people, not that yeah. they're. Yeah. I mean, even then, like. I mean, they're all just average-looking people. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean... Say I've never looked at a serial killer and been like, what a handsome fella. I know. It's I don't a know, very like, weird first response. Like, is that your Second first response? Also, is that response? your first response to everything? Yeah. Like, also, like, when you look at them, they're all just average-looking. Like, <laughs> at, at best. On yeah. top of the fact that they're serial killers, I think people just like getting the attention for saying outrageous things, honestly. Yeah. Because what can you find charming about somebody who harmed so many people yeah there's right there is like a level of um attention uh a a call for attention with that that is um alarming uh it's extreme yeah that's extremely distressing but like also feels it's like a pretty serious cry for help yeah i don't think it helps that like they've been casting casting like hollywood heartthrobs to play no. serial killers like like evan peters evan peters zach um, efron zach ross lynch who um, did ross lynch play jeffrey dahmer why my friend dahmer it was like a it was like about his life right before he started killing like him in high school so not only does that kind of glorify him but it kind of i guess it tries to like 
I don't know, justify how he Normalize. was as a kid. I don't know. Humanize, yeah, like all the. Time. I guess it's trying to humanize him, but it's yeah. just no. Yeah, um, I don't want to be just like Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, already like, is it? It's already ethically questionable to make so many like acted out depictions yeah. of these serial killers. So to decide to um, cast who are known heartthrobs yeah. as these killers, it, what makes you think that's a good idea? Like. Zac Efron doesn't look remotely like Ted Bundy. I mean, I guess when you see him in all the makeup and everything, there's like a resemblance, but they don't they don't even look close to similar. It's like they purposely hired someone who is like a Hollywood sex symbol mm-hmm. to play this character, either to cause drama or to get more views. I don't know. I don't know what his like I what is Zac Efron's motivation for doing this too? Is he just trying to like get taken more seriously as someone doing like grizzly? Yeah, sort like of a content? serious role. Yeah. Pick up a paycheck, I guess. Oh. I, don't I mean, know. he didn't ask to be called a sex symbol. It just kind of happened. Yeah, I don't think anyone goes to Hollywood and says, "I'm going to be a sex symbol," unless yeah, you're Jimmy no, Garoppolo. And like at the end of the day, this is his job, and he's still going to try to make money how he can. But like, there were so many other casting options. I'm sure so many people came in. Yeah, and auditioned. Yeah, I mean, it is the thing of, like, like why are people making this? Uh, why are people auditioning for it? Like, why are people funding it? I don't know the answer. Profit. Yeah, I mean, it is. That's all it is. Like, could you imagine going down? Like, like you know how, uh, whatchamacallit, when you, when you say, like, Michael Keaton, people mm-hmm. think Batman. Mm-hmm. Imagine going down in history as that guy who played Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, at the same time, I guess they have to cast bigger people so they're not the person who was jeffrey Dahmer, the person who was ted bundy but yeah at the same time i don't know yeah like i could i could differentiate zach efron from from ted bundy i guess but still yeah i'll never understand it i just i understand that a lot of things are just done for profit but that's just that's obviously unethical and so messed up and it just yeah why why don't we have more true crimes though that are true crime narratives that are like not the things I've already named, right? Or the things we've talked this whole time about. Most of the ones I listen to are like, like you said, podcasts or YouTube. Like, I follow a lot of YouTube channels who talk about like smaller cases yeah. that not everybody knows about. And I particularly like those smaller cases because like, they're not as talked about, but they're yeah. just as scary. Yeah. And be- it's almost scarier because they're not as talked about. Do you listen to uh, My Favorite Murder? No. That one, that was another really, like, huge one. Um, it's Karen Kilgari and, um, I forgot her name. Like, that's a long-running uh, podcast. And one of the examples, um, so it's a true crime podcast by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstock. How is that? Hardstark. Hardstark. Um, and they're going through some of those like more local cases, right? People kind of write in and be like, this was something that was happening in my area. Can you look into it? And it is very victim focused, but it's also like if we're asking who the producers are of the of the kind of narratives that we keep pointing to as being more ethical, they are frequently women. And certainly my mm-hmm. favorite murder is an example of that. Serial is an example of that. Um, I know uh, on YouTube, yeah. like, uh, the, the Kidology channel that I mentioned earlier, in her video, she also talked about how there's, specifically, this is on YouTube, but this could, like, mm-hmm. stretch out in other things. Um, she said there's two uh, camps of true crime creators, the female-dominated and the male-dominated. Mm-hmm. Uh, the females tend to make the stories more personal, mm-hmm. having their own commentary and reactions. Um, 
they often tell the story, like they tell the story in chronological order and they tend to focus on the victims. While more male dominated uh, true crime content has a more psychological perspective, mm-hmm. um, less personal. Um, they often play like clips of interro- in- interrogations. Uh, they're all about the facts and they start in the middle of things, like yeah. where the murder or whatever starts. And they yeah. tend to focus on the murderer's life instead. Yeah. Yeah, and even, like, something... I have not watched Dateline in in a very long time, but my memory is, like, even the people they interview are not the victims' families. They are not... Or the victims or survivors. They are, like, police investigators, prosecutors, Mm -hmm. who skew male, I think, in those cases as well. I just did the thing I said I wasn't going to do. Who are often men. Um, Whereas, absolutely, I have noticed that when we have women creators, we tend to see a very different kind of story. And that's true in true crime, and it's true in a bunch of other places. Um, and certainly why we need to think about who's making our stuff, not just who's appearing in it. Because there are examples, um, Making a Murderer, I believe also mm-hmm. um, primarily created, um, or at least a couple of the producers are women. Uh, and people pointed to that as a, as, you know, a more kind of um, elevated version of the, of the genre. Um, and it's focused on men, right? So it's not just about who we're telling stories about, um, it's who's making the stories. There's a lot of layers that we can look at in thinking about how to make the genre more ethical, more, I don't know, more considerate of, uh, of victims, more thoughtful about how we're actually engaging with the specific details of these crimes and, like, and asking ourselves, like, what are we doing this for? Um, if it's just money, like, that's, not a, that's not a great, and that's not a great reason to to unload the, these really traumatic um, stories, I think. Thank you guys for listening. I've been Dom. I've been Faith. And I'm Megan Gross. And I really <laughs> liked being here with you both. I'm looking forward to hearing all the, all of your shows, but maybe not this one because I don't want to listen to my voice. Mm, so true. Prayer. <laughs> um, tune so, in next time. Yeah. And avoid those red flags. Mm-hmm. <laughs>